0: Welcome to the Museum of Femininity, a podcast exploring themes, material, culture and stories that relate to the struggles and triumphs of women, both past and present. Hello, welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appleyard. During the time of recording, the world is in the grip of the COVID-19 crisis, which is very scary and for most has completely altered their day-to-day life. So while working from home, I have certainly found solace and distraction in researching the topic of today's podcast, which I hope also provides you with some escapism. Quite purposefully, the topic of today most definitely does not involve any social distancing. Uh, So today... I will be telling you about how the wealthy echelons of society partied in the Regency era, which was from 1810 to around 1820, and marks the period where George IV was Prince Regent. More specifically, I will do a bit of a deep dive into the culture of the Assembly Rooms, which were public spaces that were, however, very exclusive and difficult to get into, sort of the 1810s equivalent of a high-class nightclub today. In addition, this is a podcast that focuses on the experiences of women in history, uh, so I will be viewing this subject through a female lens. Mrs Allen was so long in dressing that they did not enter the ballroom till late. The season was full, the room crowded. And the two ladies squeezed in as well as they could as for mr allen he repaired directly to the card room and left them to enjoy a mob by themselves this passage describes a scene from jane austen's 1817 novel north anger abbey in which the young impressionable heroine catherine morland experiences her first taste of bath nightlife, which serves as an excellent case study for what entertainment and fun looked like in Regency England generally. We often look at the Regency period as being rather stately and refined, but in reality there was a lot of misbehaving, a great deal of which occurred at the parties and balls that dominated any fashionable individual's calendar. In this episode of the Museum of Femininity, we will be looking at the social life of a regency lady. If you were a young lady of a certain class, marriage would be at the forefront of your mind. As girls could not inherit estates, securing a wealthy husband who could provide for them would have inevitably been a priority, and something so ingrained in social expectations few would have questioned it. In fact, young ladies spent their days honing their talents and refining their accomplishments to make themselves more attractive and cultured. This could be anything from dancing, playing the piano, to learning foreign languages and developing their needlework. Once a girl reached marriageable age, she would come out by attending balls and parties where she could meet young single men, as well as enjoy some stimulation and fun. A ball would have been an enormously exciting part of any young lady's calendar, and in reality, they had the potential to be charged with a highly erotic atmosphere. One trigger for such thoughts was the fashion, which in the early 19th century is utterly different to the stiff stays and wide, cumbersome panniers of only a few decades before. Since the war with France, the importation of silk was prohibited, and fashion was drifting away from the elaborate styles of the ousted French aristocracy. Instead, with recent trading relationships with Asia, new materials were flooding into the market, such as muslin, These fabrics were light and flowing and would have drifted over the body in a suggestive manner, with the outline of the girl's figure being ever so faintly visible underneath. This was also a time of new discoveries, like the unearthing of Pompeii and Herculaneum, and of revived interest in Greco-Roman art and culture, so it is no wonder the fashions of the Regency period echoed revealing tunics, that would not have been out of place in 100 AD. The clothing of the time coupled with the heat and crowds of a bull and the likelihood of close physical contact with the opposite sex must have stirred up some excitement. In contrast to these new fashion trends was the typical societal expectations of women whose character at this time was very much dictated by religious values Some publications that were widely distributed included James Fordyce's Sermons to Young Women and John Gregory's A Father's Legacy to His Daughters, both of which were grounded in doctrine and promoted chastity, virtuosity and domesticity. You may remember Mr Collins reading from Fordyce's sermons in Pride and Prejudice, of course, men did not face the same level of scrutiny, and this era is often regarded as being home to the last wave of debauched, rakish young men who enjoyed hedonistic pleasures. Taking the sort of life girls led and pressures placed upon them, a bull must have been an enjoyable release, giving them the opportunity to have some fun. In order to truly paint a picture of what a ball must have been like, we will need to analyse how they worked in detail. For this, I will specifically be using the fashionable spa city of Bath as an example, and the assembly rooms which were the heart of all social activity from 1771 when they were built. The Bath assembly rooms followed a standard layout for this sort of venue, they were designed by neoclassical architect John Wood Jr who with his father had formed a powerhouse duo who were responsible for designing the majority of iconic buildings in Bath including the Royal Crescent, the Circus and Queen's Square. These rooms however were enormous in comparison to anything of its kind that had previously been built and demonstrated the growing population of Bath as it became an increasingly more desirable destination for the social season, which took place from October to June. I think the building of the assembly rooms, or upper rooms as they are sometimes known, also can shed light on the Georgian society's ever-expanding taste for leisure and entertainment. It is no coincidence that during this time we also see theatres, pleasure gardens, music halls, fairs and curiosity exhibitions springing up across the country. In 1819 the book Walks Through Bath Describing Everything Worthy of Interest describes the rooms in detail. In this book we learn the ballroom is around 100 feet long and was adorned with Corinthian columns and marble statues that sat in niches along the walls. The tall windows were also covered with ornately decorated boards to block out the light during a ball. Imagine the darkness and the romantic atmosphere created by hundreds of glowing candles that would have burnt from five magnificently sparkling glass chandeliers. There were also huge mirrors on either side, which must have made the space look even more awe-inspiring and massive. As this book says... The elegance of the ballroom astonishes every spectator. As well as the ballroom, there were other spaces for people to mingle and explore. There was also the Great Octagon, where people would meet and promenade. Cards, tables could also be set up here for the purpose of gambling. This room also had paintings in it, including a Thomas Gainsborough portrait, of the first Master of Ceremonies, Captain William Wade, who cut a roguish and handsome figure. This painting was given to the rooms when they first opened and can still be seen there today. Adjoining the Octagon was the Tea Room, a place for refreshments, which was also often called the Concert Room, due to its excellent acoustics and frequent use for musical performances. Samuel Wesley describes this fervour The main concert venue was the Upper Rooms in Bennett Street, where the veteran castrato Venezio Razzini presided over a series of concerts in which local musicians were joined by leading players and singers from London. In addition, there was a card room and reading room, likely for the older gentlemen. So essentially assemblies and balls were visited by all and there were always and there was always something to do no matter what your interest or your age it is no wonder they were so busy and full to the brim with up to 1000 visitors pouring in in the hope of elevating their status or possibly catching the eye of an eligible young suitor jane austen of course is partly responsible for bringing the ball to life for modern readers she herself lived in bath for a time as well as including it in her novels *Northanger abbey and persuasions she also attended balls and wrote to her sister cassandra about them in this passage we can get an idea of the way the night could pan out and how it was structured quote by nine o'clock my uncle aunt and i entered the rooms and linked miss windstone on us Before tea, it was rather a dull affair. By then, the before tea did not last long, for there was only one dance, danced by four couples. Think of four couples, surrounded by about a hundred people, dancing in the upper rooms at Bath. After tea, we cheered up. The breaking up of private parties sent some scores more to the ball, and though it was shockingly and inhumanly thin for this place, there were people enough to have made five or six very pretty Basingstoke assemblies. During the season, the assembly rooms were open every day except Sundays for cards, and for most other nights of the week, either balls or other activities. For example, Mondays were dress balls, Wednesdays was a concert, and Thursdays fancy balls. Fridays were also um, a day for a card assembly. The start and end time of a ball was very strict, so it began at 8.30 and ended at 11.30 on the dot. Exceptions were made on the King's birthday and during the Master of Ceremonies celebration where dancing could go on for the entire night if that's what people wanted. Dances of this period were cotillons or quadrilles, which were social formation dances. These involved complex steps, interlacing movements, and often couples standing and moving in a synchronised manner. Lively country dances were also fashionable and often involved, involved lines of couples taking it in turns to dance through the middle of the rows. Um, they, they, they were quite bouncy and energetic, and some dancers could go on for as long as half an hour. Learning dance steps could be complicated. Wealthier girls would have benefited from a dancing master, but there were also many books published, such as An Analysis of Country Dancing by Thomas Wilson, which contains descriptions and diagrams of the steps in a variety of country dances, and this was published in 1811. A lady called Constance Hill um, wrote a lot about Jane Austen and the Regency era in the 1920s, and she also wrote about these dances and what occurred um, during an assembly night. So I'll just read to you um, some of her writing. Quote, the Monday Dress Ball is devoted to the country dancers only. At the Fancy Ball on Thursday, two cotillions are danced, one before and one after tea. This Fancy Ball was not a ball costume, but simply an occasion on which the stringent rules regulating evening dress were relaxed. In the height of the season, continues our author, there are generally 12 sets And as the ladies on this occasion exert their fancy to the utmost in the display of their shapes and their dress, the spectacle is magnificent. The ladies, we read, wore comparatively short skirts for the cotillion, which, with their overdresses, picturesquely looped up. So she gives us a better idea of what people wore and the expectations for each different ball night. There were often around 11 musicians who would sit in the upper galleries. The instruments they commonly played were the harp, tabor, and pipe. So you may be wondering how did they choose what to play and what dances would precede the last. The process of selecting the tune and figures to be danced was known as calling a dance. Couples would take it in turns to lead off a country dance from the top of the set. The master of ceremonies would liaise with the instructions between the calling couple and the leader of the band. So it's this symbiotic relationship between the people dancing and the band. I will include a link to uh, some country dance music commonly played during this time in the show notes. Before a ball, attendees would eat fairly early at around 4pm. So halfway through the night, they were likely to be ravenously hungry. At public balls, a full meal was rarely served, but some food and light refreshments would have been provided at around 8pm, laid out on a table in the tea room. This would include hot hot chocolate, wine, tea, cold cuts, fruits and jellies. There are first-hand accounts describing a great crush to get to the food and drinks and some unsavoury individuals getting quite aggressive if they did not get to the table in time. There were many rules to a bull that had to be abided otherwise you would face being kicked out. Firstly, the ball was overseen by a master of ceremonies who was part manager, part spokesperson for the entire undertaking. Other historic and famous Bath master of ceremonies, like Beau Nash, were famous for elevating the social standing of the city and completely reinventing the nightlife. They had the power to set codes of conduct and were in charge of overseeing the night, ensuring nobody misbehaved and no riffraff was allowed in. Before you could even think about attending a ball at the rooms, you had to pay a subscription, which cost one pound and ten shillings, which allowed you three tickets for a ball, preferably for yourself and two ladies. If you wanted a meal, that was an extra six pence as well. And you weren't allowed to transfer your tickets to somebody else either. Other rules included leaving a little time in between dances for ladies to take their seat and additional ladies to come to the floor. In addition, the front three rows of seats were reserved only for women of high standing. In all the rules of the day, it also states that women were completely in their right to refuse a man if he asked her to dance. A man could also not approach a lady unless they had been formally introduced. It was also expected for a single girl to be accompanied by an older female chaperone. As well as this, there were other rules for men. No swords were allowed, to discourage fighting, and they could not be admitted if they were wearing boots, unless, of course, they were in military uniform. The parallels between the rules of Regency Assemblies and a plush contemporary nightclub have definitely not escaped my notice. At a Regency Ball, there was clear discrimination against certain types of people, such as tradesmen and those in retail, as well as theatre performers. It seems all these rules were designed to contain the fun, and keep out those who were behave- whose behaviour they perceived to be troublesome. As well as this, servants were not allowed to enter the ballroom during the festivities, which shrouds the space in a definite air of mystery and exclusivity. Of course, it was important for a lady to cultivate herself intellectually and artistically, but it was also equally important for her to carefully consider how she presented herself. As this was seen as being a strong visual indicator of a woman's grace and attractiveness. The Mirror of the Graces, or the English Lady's Costume, uh, with useful advice on female accomplishments, politeness, etc. It's a very long title, was an 1811 book written by an unknown lady of auspicious social status. As well as encouraging certain modes of fashion, this book also delves into other important lifestyle habits like regular fresh air, having frequent baths and not caking your skin with makeup, but using an understated amount of rouge. It also very bitchily talks about about the inappropriateness of older women adopting youthful styles which should only be worn by young ladies with slender figures. Even those styles were more simplistic compared to the ornate brocade silks of the early Georgians. There were still different types of dress worn for specific occasions, and I think how you dressed and what you wore was very important, and wearing the wrong thing could probably be seen as incredibly vulgar. So there was for sure a lot of attention placed on how a woman looked, how she behaved her opinions. Everything was sort of manufactured to fit into this mould. It's very sad. It must have felt very confining and difficult to speak up and have your own mind. So of course there was something very specific you had to wear to an evening ball and there was a sort of middle category. There was also court dress which was much more elaborate but the the, the ball dress, um, they were, of course, made with more luscious fabrics compared to day dresses, so muslin and lighter silks, for example. They were also very comfortable with a shorter hem that made it easier to dance for long periods of time. Sometimes they would be embroidered with metal or lace embellishments um, and, at that time, a high empire waistline was very fashionable, and for an evening dress, they would have had a lower cut collar. Women, uh, they would have accessorised with maybe elbow length gloves, a fan, a necklace, and hair ornaments like feathers. Um, Hair was always worn up, but it was also fashionable to have some tendrils falling about the face. Uh, There are some charming fashion plates of the day that include instructions on hairstyles, fashion for certain occasions, and how to accessorise. Generally, it seems, for a woman of the Regency era, there was a book for everything, and you literally study how to become the perfect refined woman. It is sad in a way because this leaves you with the impression that individuality was discouraged, Women were also not educated in the same way as men, and there were and there was very uh, there was a definite stigma against employment, which also meant the majority of women had very little freedom and were financially dependent on the men in their lives. When considering this, the importance of marriage became all the more apparent, and the desire for a romantic and good match all the more understandable. Once more, these balls and parties have an extra weight to them. As well as being places to enjoy yourself and socialise, it was also essentially a market where single girls could find suitable partners and maybe fall in love. Of course, I do think uh, in the Regency time, you start to see a bit more individuality in women. I mean, these things are very gradual But, you know, people like Jane Austen and there were also other female writers of the time were creating novels from a female point of view and um, giving women more of a voice. So there were the whispers of freedom and, um, you know, breaking away from these societal expectations. But it took many, many years until, um, you know, women were able to have more equal rights and were able to aspire to be more than just wives and mothers. Um, Anyway, so I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will post all the resources in the show notes and images of fashion plates, ball gowns and illustrations of assembly rooms and balls on Instagram, which you can follow at the Museum of Femininity. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.